Alrighty, folks. So, how we do things around here is uh, tomorrow I have to sit down and figure out what I'm going to preach, um, and I and I have to submit the information to the for the bulletin tomorrow. So, what oftentimes happens is. Um, as I'm studying the passage throughout the week, I, I discover connections and things that I didn't notice at first. So you will notice in your bulletin that it says we're reading chapter 17, verses 14 to 27 through the end of the chapter. But, but as I was studying throughout the week, I noticed that beginning with the descent from the mount uh, through the end of chapter 20, Jesus is engaged in a protracted discussion about various facets of discipleship. And that culminates, of course, in chapter 21 with his triumphal entry. We are clearly on the backside of Jesus' ministry. He has his face set like flint towards Jerusalem. His mission is on his mind, and so he's got to get some things home to his disciples who are going to found the church as his apostles. And so we, brothers and sisters, are privy to what was a conversation here. So let's go ahead and uh, let's look at what Matthew the Apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote, beginning in Matthew 17, verse 14, going through verse 6 of chapter 18. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly, for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, and they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook 
and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this passage, for this protracted teaching on discipleship and the nature of faith. Father, grant that we would be humble and that we would seek to live as befits followers of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, so... Last week, we looked at the transfiguration, that, that glorious event that left an indelible impression on, on at least Peter and John. We, don't, we assume it did on James, but he was killed before he could write about it, so we don't know for sure. But Peter and John, it left an indelible imprint because the glory of the kingdom was unveiled to them, and they got a foretaste, a glimpse of the glory that is to come. And in this life, Jesus has been teaching about discipleship and how the, the call to be a disciple is a call to take up one's cross, to come and to die to oneself. But what does that look like in practice? The call to discipleship is, is fundamentally a call to a life of faith. But what does that look like? So Jesus, in this section of the Gospel of Matthew, provides us a glimpse of what does it look like to take up one's cross, to deny oneself, to, to live for the interests and purposes of the king. This he does from here through the end of chapter 20. And, and this little section here on children at the beginning of Chapter 18 serves as the hinge between this, this section on faith and then the section throughout the rest of chapter 18 on sin and forgiveness and reconciliation. It's, it's a hinge passage right there. So what we see in this passage is three little vignettes with a capstone of the verses of chapter 18, verses 1 to 4, letting us see the contrast. In contrast to what you see in these vignettes, this is what faith looks like. 
So these three little vignettes that we have are are the healing of a demon-possessed boy in verses 14 to 20. This this little, it's almost like a little speed bump, a little blip. But the second foretelling, I'm sorry, the third foretelling of the of the death and resurrection of Jesus in verses 22 and 23. And then there's this interesting interchange about the paying of the temple tax in verses 24 to 27. What do these three vignettes have to tell us about the nature of faith? The first one, the first vignette, The healing of a boy possessed teaches us that faith is absolute trust in the object. Faith is absolute trust in the object. This is an interesting passage. In four previous places, Our Lord has expressed shock at the lack of faith in his disciples. They had been empowered to cast out demons in Matthew 10, 8, and they had done so. In fact, in Luke's account of when they come back from that trip, they're rejoicing, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And what does Jesus say to them in that moment? Well, for a moment, he shares their enthusiasm. Yeah, I saw Satan fall like lightning. But don't rejoice that they're subject to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he shares their enthusiasm for a moment, but then redirects them. But here despite having previously cast out demons, they're not able to do so. What's going on? Well, first of all, as an aside, I love taking the opportunity every time I get the opportunity to point out and and, and deflate a common myth, the the myth of the high-functioning demoniac. Okay, whether it's thanks to Hollywood or, or whatever, anytime we see like some sinisterly evil person, we think, oh, they're possessed for sure. Okay? No, they're not. They're just evil. In the Bible, with absolute consistency, demons want to destroy their host. They deface, they degrade, and they destroy. And so in Mark, when Mark tells this story, he's very clear. In Matthew, because of what Matthew is trying to emphasize, you might come away with thinking that his seizures just happen, and as a consequence, he's falling in the fire and in the water. But Mark wants you to, Mark focuses on the actions of the demon, and you see that the demon is throwing him into the fire, throwing him into the water. In every case in the Bible, when there's a person possessed, the demon seeks to destroy it. It strips the person of his humanity, degrades him, and incapacitates him, and seeks to kill him. 
So when the demons get cast into the herd of pigs and they run and immediately kill the pigs, that's what they do. They bring only death and destruction, okay? So once again, dispel the myth of the high-functioning criminal mastermind demoniac. It's not real. A person who's possessed is in a pitiable state of degradation. But this man comes. And here we, we catch a glimpse of Jesus' very human frustration with persistent unbelief. Oh, twisted and unbelieving generation. How long am I going to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Understand, the disciples, they have seen everything. And yet, they still are hard of heart. And Jesus, he is no stranger to your exasperation when people just won't get it. But in his mercy, he heals the child. And the demon is out immediately. But why couldn't they? And Jesus says, it's because of your little faith. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, you will be able to say to a mountain, move from here to there, and it will do that. What, what, why do you... What does Jesus mean? Well, sometimes you have a mistranslation if you have faith as small as a mustard seed. That's not what the text says. If you have the faith of a mustard seed. And we've talked in the past how a mustard seed is a super, super small seed. But it becomes this massive tree-like bush. When it speaks, when Jesus speaks of having the faith of a mustard seed, he's speaking as if the seed is a, is a personified being. That it's aware of its present state. As utterly helpless, utterly insignificant, utterly unimpressive. But is absolutely undeterred by the world as it looks from that vantage point and moment. Instead, what does the mustard seed see? It sees slow, steady, undeterred, uninterrupted growth and it sees this massive bush that the birds of the air take refuge in and it sees the glorious picture. So when Jesus alludes to the faith of a mustard seed, he's referring to what the New Testament and other places will do when it calls us to elevate our eyes and to set our minds on the things of heaven. You see, looking at circumstances, looking at the world around you and taking it as, as if it is the end state, 
causes you to feel weak. It invites you to feel hopeless and helpless. These disciples have have struggled with faith throughout their journey. And in the next vignette, we we get a crystal clear glimpse of this earthly mindedness. But I have a high degree of confidence that what transpired is they were feeling cocky. They, They were feeling like they were hot stuff. They'd seen demons flee before them and they were operating out of a a perception that this is going to be some easy feat. The demons are subject to us, they said. And so, they went up there and, and the demon laughed. And at that, their faith was gone. And they were weak. Unimpressive. Because they kept their eyes on the things of the world. They were riding on past glories rather than having an absolute confidence in the object of their faith to accomplish the thing that he had commissioned them to do. They didn't fully believe. And that leads us to the second vignette. Jesus tells them plainly again about his death and his resurrection. So, another side thing. Remember, remember, remember the the message of our Lord, the reason he says it so many times beforehand is so that we will remember that when our world bottoms out, like the world of the apostles is about to bottom out, that we will know this is not an accident. This is not the universe conspiring. This comes to you through the hand of a good, wise omnipotent and omniscient God. And specifically, the death of the Son of God was no accident. It was the reason he came. So their world's about to go dark. But it's no accident. Hold on in the midst of it. And while it's true that Jesus points out that his pending death and resurrection is no accident, and that he's fully aware. In fact, in John, he goes so far as to say, no one takes my life, I lay it down. Do you think for a moment that the God who is sovereign over the death and resurrection of his son is any less sovereign over the difficulties and occurrences of your life? You are his son and his daughter. You are his beloved child. Is that not the consistent uniform message of the New Testament? That in Christ you are his beloved child. So Jesus, our elder brother, is a foretaste and a, and a, and a 
foreshadowing of what God interacts with us. He directs your steps. And Jesus tells us in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. It is no accident. And it's your opportunity to shine. Or rather, it's your opportunity to let the Lord shine in you, through you. And you, brothers and sisters, get the sanctification. But the disciples do something here. They, they fall victim to the very human tendency to hear only the thing they want to hear. Jesus says he's going to be killed and on the third day be raised up. But their reaction, it says, it says in the ESV, they were greatly distressed and depending on your version, it says they were filled with grief, sorrow. In, in other words, Jesus said, I'm going to die and on the third day be raised up. But guess what's the part that they listened to? I'm going to die. And is that not what we all do? We, we get frustrated and angry when, when the people on the other side do it to our politicians they take the sound bite, they rip it out of context, and it makes your guy sound, and you get so angry that they do that. But then we do it too. And here the disciples have done it to Jesus. They listened to what they wanted to hear. And, and why would they listen and react to news of death, but not news of being raised up on the third day? Because which one happens? People die. People get killed. Roman had, Rome had absolutely zero qualms with killing somebody. But people don't just come back alive. They could see the storm clouds gathering. They could see that there was opposition. They could hear what Jesus was saying. They knew there was trouble brewing. But people coming back alive, that's, that's the spiritual part that made no sense. And so that's the part that they likely took to be hyperbole, one of Jesus's, I don't know, crazy metaphors or something. But dying, that they're very familiar with. So they focused on that. But that's symptomatic of their mind that's focused on the things of this world. And it's symptomatic of a perspective that is seeing the factors and circumstances and predicaments of this life as being more real, more substantive than the things of the unseen world. Thus, they didn't have the faith to cast out a demon because they were looking at circumstances. They were looking at the horizontal plane. But then there's this third vignette. 
Jesus and Peter, they're together in a house. They've made a, a circuit of their trip. It, it says that they make it back to Capernaum. Capernaum is kind of where they started several chapters ago. So they've gone around, they've gone up in, I mean, they, they've gone all over the place. They've gone up into uh, Gentile lands. They've come down the east side of the, of the Dead Sea, of the Sea of Galilee into Gentile lands. They've crossed back over. And now they've kind of come full circle. They're back in Capernaum, where, where Peter's from, where, where Jesus had made his home base. And Jesus knows the discussion that Peter had had with the tax collectors. Now, this is an interesting tax. The people here are not collecting on behalf of Rome. They're here to collect the so-called temple tax. Instituted in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13 to 16, this tax was designed to, to fund and maintain the work of, at first, the tabernacle. And then when the tabernacle became the temple, the tax was continued for the purpose of maintaining and, and doing the upkeep on the temple. And so they were collecting for it. Now, now here's the interesting thing. One, Rome didn't care. No one was going to go to jail for not paying this tax. Okay? Uh, so Rome didn't care. But this tax, even though if you look in, in Exodus, there's no exceptions made for anybody, and it's just every, every male 20 years of age and older has to pay it. Nonetheless, by the time Jesus came on the scene, there, there were a few exception clauses. People who made their living off of charity did not have to pay. And rabbis did not have to pay. So by two accounts, Jesus didn't have to pay. He, he, he made his living off of charity, charitable donations, and he was frequently called rabbi. So he, he on two accounts, very, very practically, could have just not paid. But, but then he has this discussion here, and he, and he makes it a theological question. And he asks the question, do kings tax their sons or others? And obviously, kings don't tax their own sons. To us Americans, where there's equal, supposedly equality under the law, we don't get that. But in, if you go to a civilization where there's a royal family ruling, the royal family has perks. And this is for the temple. All right. And do kings tax their sons? No. So Jesus is making a theological point about being the son of the king. He's God's son. Therefore, he is exempt from taxation, so to speak. But he does an interesting thing here. He says, so that they might not be offended, go catch a fish and you'll find the needed tax. Now, here's why that's interesting. Because we 21st century Americans who, you know, oh, don't be offensive. Oh, got it. Jesus had no qualms being offensive. Look at what he's done so far. I mean, the, the Pharisees, for example, allowed for medically necessary treatment if there was an emergency on the Sabbath. 
And the reason they got so mad about Jesus healing a blind person is, well, quite frankly, this may sound hard, but from the hardened perspective of a Pharisee, so what? It's not like he's writhing in pain. Being blind isn't hurtful. He's been blind for 20 years. He can be blind for one more day. And Jesus could have adopted that logic, avoided a whole lot of controversy, and just healed the guy the next day. But Jesus does. People are walking through the field. Jesus could have said, hey, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive, so we're not going to pick grain. Hey, guys, grain, pick some grain the day before, or guys, just go home, wait till you're at, the, we'll get some food later. Or Jesus could have just miracled some food. But he doesn't. He has no problem offending their sensibilities sometimes. So what's the deal here? And what's the lesson for the life of faith here? Well, I think it's similar to what you see in the life of Paul. Paul was very selective about when he would pick a fight. And so, for example... Uh, Timothy, he takes Timothy on a mission and, and he likes to minister to the Jews and, at first. And Timothy, though a Jew, was not circumcised. So even though Paul writes everything he writes about circumcision not being a, a, a spiritually significant thing anymore, nonetheless, he has Timothy circumcised. Now, Titus, who was not raised a Jew, joins him on those same trips, and he fights tooth and nail, and he refuses to have Titus circumcised. What's the difference? Well, the difference is, is because Timothy was born a Jew, raised a Jew, there's a legitimate expectation on the part of the Jewish people that if he wants to be considered one of them, he needs to be one of them, and be circumcised. And for a Jew, to person to call themselves a Jew and not be circumcised is, is ridiculously offensive, unnecessarily so. But Titus, who was not a Jew, they had no claim on him. In this passage, what we see is a situation where Jesus had a legitimate out. He could have asserted his rights. But at the same time, the tax is born not of misuse or abuse or twisting of God's word, but it's born of an application of a faithful interpretation of it. So Jesus could have said, uh, forget you people, I'm not paying this tax. I don't like what you guys do with it. Instead, not to cause unnecessary offense, he pays it. All right. Then the little child comes and is presented in response to the, action, to the question, who's the greatest? And Jesus puts a little child right there. And we are prone and we are conditioned to think of children as cute and just, just funny and just, just precious. And we've talked at great lengths how that was not the perspective of the people in the first century. Even though they understood covenantal concepts and children were included in the life of the community, children were basically a bother. They, they, were, they were messy. They were in the way. They, 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 they're, they're, and 
just get out of the way until you turn 12 and then you can be taught a, taught a trade. And that's just it. When people say that we're called to childlike faith as if, as if just, just, just trusting. No, that's not. Everywhere the Bible condemns an infantile faith that just believes whatever. Children and their propensity to believe whatever you say, that's not condoned in Scripture. That's looked down upon as immaturity that we must flee from. What is looked upon with great honor is the fact that a child will come to you without any of the pretense that you see. Though you are a person of finite size and stature, you're relatively frail and weak. To that child, you are Superman. I remember my kids having nightmares that there was a monster in the closet. And I would say to those kids when they were really young, nope, there is no monster in your closet. I do not allow it. And if a monster comes into your closet, I am going to rip it in half and throw half of it in the Ohio River and the other half in the dumpster. And because at that young age, I would bench press my kids regularly. And to them, I was... And if I said that if a monster came in the house and that I was going to tear it into two pieces and throw it in the river, and they believed it. And there was no fear. The fear of monsters went away. Because they had absolute trust in me. And so this child is presented as the model of what we must look like. And it's the kind of faith Jesus is calling us to where we're not, look, we're not looking at circumstances. We're not looking at outward appearances. We're not basing our walk on past glories. We're just simply coming with our mess, with our dependency, with no pretension, just coming and trusting and believing. That's what Jesus wants. Not claiming rights. Children have to be taught that. They just, they just come. So brothers and sisters, rather than claiming royal prerogatives as the son of or daughter of God, wondering why you had to pay for that oil change or whatever, a guy preaching downtown actually had the audacity to say that kind of thing. But you're a son or daughter of God. But far from claiming pretentious rights, we walk a path of service. Rather than thinking that we come to God with attainments and accomplishments to our name that we can bank on, we just come. Just come. And trust and follow, and he will lead you the right way. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for these lessons in the life of faith. Grant that we would be faithful to come as children. That we would forget whatever accomplishments or attainments we think are so impressive. And we would rather just come. With nothing in our hands. Grant that we would, like children, believe. 
Grant that like children, we would rely wholly on you and see you as being solely and completely satisfying and that we would raise our eyes beyond our perspectives and the view we have looking at things from this vantage point. Grant us that we would see from eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.